welcome to this second edition of the Walks Through Time podcast. I have today come to the Wings Museum. Now, this is a quite interesting collection of World War II related artifacts, uh, bits of plane, large bits of plane that have been uh, found all over the world, really. And uh, it's quite close to Crawley in uh, West Sussex, uh, between Handcross and Balcombe, if you even vaguely know the area. And uh, we're probably about a two-mile walk from Balcombe Station across country. I have to admit, I didn't actually walk here today, but it is amongst some truly amazing countryside, really, considering quite how close to places like Gatwick that we are. And there are several named paths around. We've got the Sussex Ooze Valley Way, which uh, is uh, 42 miles long between Lower Beeding and Seaford Bay, I'm told. And uh, not far from here, on that route, you uh, get to see the Ooze Valley Viaduct, which is another one of these uh, famous railway viaducts. This particular one carrying the main railway line between London and Brighton. And... uh, Yes, you sort of uh, walk through the countryside and uh, suddenly this great big thing looms out of nowhere. Another one, the High Wheeled Landscape Trail, which goes from Horsham to Rye, and that's 95 miles long if you're feeling particularly energetic. And not far off of that, uh, you can nip to any number of interesting places. The Wings Museum is just one of them. My name's Daniel Hunt. I'm one of the curators of the Wings Museum here at Balcombe. So, Dan, how would you describe the Wings Museum? What what, what is its purpose? Its purpose is mainly remembrance, to recognise what sort of past generations have done for the sort of world that we live in today and the, the freedom that we've got today. Although there are still obviously conflicts going on, and I think there probably always will be, regrettably, but the museum is to remind especially the younger generations, that you know, it all had a price. And certainly, I mean, we're standing here between two wrecks, is that a polite word for them? Two wrecks of planes from different parts of the world? No, I think you can say it's a, a fairly fair... They're not a fair description of what they are, but a lot of what's in the museum is quite wreck-like, and the reason is, is because it's been through a world war. All of these exhibits have actually played an active part in World War Two, so... You know, obviously, they bear the scars from that. Plus, they've also had to survive for the next sort of 70 years before recovery. So is the recovery of these things where some of this interest has come from? Yeah, I think probably it started for me and my brother. My brother's also a co-curator of the museum. Was that as children, I was probably about six and my brother would have been about 10. We were walking an old airfield in East Anglia in Norfolk and I think it was Flixton Airfield, from if my memory serves me correct. All right, yes. But we're walking around the perimeter, and my dad just saw a gun sight sticking out of the ploughed field on the edge, and As he picked do. it up, yeah. and he showed it to us. And I, I think my brother was at the age where he was building airfix models and sort of had a general interest anyway, because I think you are born to some degree with an interest in it. And then as kids, we went off looking for other bits. And of course, in the 19, sort of, it was very early 80s, we were coming out with all sorts of bits and bobs, panels from B-24 Liberators that had sort of shrapnel holes through them. And they just literally discarded the panel into the woods. 
and then it was some years later actually because we didn't realize at the time but on reflection when we looked at these parts we actually found that the aircraft numbers were stenciled on the back of the panel so we were uh -huh. actually able to some years later uncover the stories that were behind them and are all those bits that you found back then in here somewhere they are yeah we've actually got a display set up in the bomber section which contains all the, all the sort of major finds that we found on the airfields and it actually also includes the original gun site as well that started wow. it all so even after what must be nearly probably 40 odd years <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's uh, there for people to see so whether my dad actually regrets ever finding it or not i, I don't know but wish he, wished he walked past <laughs> yeah i think probably probably the, the moral there is to be careful what you show your kids <laughs> all on the other hand it's good that it has fired this interest yeah yeah it certainly has it's quite nice that it's sort of led to to other people that you know obviously we receive a lot of help here certainly when it comes to staffing restoration there's just so much to do with a museum like this and the possibilities are endless as well you know we need as much help as we can get you do have quite a few nice volunteers that we'll be speaking to about what they get up to here but just briefly we as i say we're standing between two planes what what are these two um on my left is uh, a bell p63 king cobra and it was made in america as a long-range fighter it had a massive cannon that fired through the, the the propeller through the nose and that was a 37 millimeter cannon so it had a, an awesome sort of firepower but no matter how much they tried they did struggle with the range and they actually lost the contract in the end to the mustang which had a much further range because at that time the american u.s army air force were trying to find an escort that could take the bombers to berlin and back they did introduce under wing tanks but it still lacked the range but at that time they then had the russians asking them for equipment to you know to keep fighting hitler on the eastern front mm. so it was recognized that the p63 would suit that theater of war operations quite well so they actually diverted pretty much all of them to Russia on a lend-lease, which technically means that the Russians are supposed to pay for them <laughs> after the war. Yes, but? So there's, there is a but. You know, I haven't gone into the legalities of it, but I believe there was a clause in there that if something was destroyed in action, it didn't have to be paid for. So, of course, the Russians at the end of the war basically went around hacking them all up, butchering them so that they argued that, you know, they didn't need paying for but I think previously to that, what's interesting about the King Cobra is that even after 1945, it had a brief action of about six weeks against the Japanese just after the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima and uh -huh. then later Nagasaki. Mm. The Russians invaded some quite remote islands in the Kuril Islands to coincide with that attack. So it opened up yet another front that the Japanese had to defend. So you might say it was a straw that broke the camel's back, but the Russians did invade these islands, and evidence shows that actually even when the Japanese signed the official surrender document, that didn't stop the battles that were going on in these remote parts, and they carried on, because right. obviously the Russians were advancing, and so they, they carried on until they were forced to stop when the attention caught up with them. Yeah. I mean, th these are stories that we don't generally hear about over here we think ve day and that's it really yeah possibly um, even forgetting a lot of other things in japan yeah we got vj day which obviously everybody thinks then that the war was over but certainly unofficially the actions 
are known to have carried on um, mm. in these islands and of course the, the Russians have maintained the territory that they took they still own them today there and was I an think, ulterior motive do you think well, I'm sure yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they, they are rich in sort of uh, natural minerals and various you know they are useful and strategically I think they're quite useful yeah but the, the service of the P-63 carried on even after the war the Americans were then quite concerned that, well, okay, you know, what was what was going on in Berlin? The Russians were actually quite close to their border in Alaska. So they actually sent a flight of uh, reconnaissance aircraft to photograph the Russian positions. And it is reported in the archives that they were intercepted by a flight of what was called Franks then, which was the NATO code name for their own aircraft, which was the P-63 King Cobra. And right. the Russians carried on using them until about sort of 1950 right. uh, so the first reconnaissance flight from the americans was fended off by these and what with its massive cannon i'm not really surprised that they actually did actually turn back but that kind of kicked off the sort of beginning part of the cold war really and the other plane to our right here and on the right is a uh, nakajima b5 n2 and it had the allied code name of a kate it's basically a Japanese torpedo bomber with three crew. It had a pilot, a gunner, um, stroke bomber, and a, and a rear gunner. And this one served quite early on in the war. It's actually got um, data plates from it that uh, date back to 1941. Um, so it's seen an awful lot of action, but it ended up in the Kuril Islands in 1945, where it force-landed on a beach which is the diorama that we represent it here today, and then spent the next 70-odd years just sat there. Some of the sections were removed, you know, some of the lighter sections, like the rear tail section and the outer wings were removed for scrap, but the main centre section sat there. And up until, well, probably two years ago, it was the only one in the world. There has since been another one turn up, which mm. is now at the Pearl Harbour Museum, but uh, this is probably certainly a, a rare survivor. There's a lot of... Uh, sort of repair patches and bullet holes all over it so you know we, we can't prove it but who knows it might well have been at Pearl Harbor. So hearing these stories how do they come to be here? How, how do you find these things on the other side of the world? Around the sort of early noughties we were introduced by someone to the Russians. I suppose you might say that there's a chain of people who are on the ground and those that can get them out of the country, that's the next big challenge. It's not just finding them, but it's actually getting the permissions from the Ministry of Culture to actually export them. That can prove to be very difficult, but mm. we... Um, you presumably just have to persuade them it's yeah. in the greater good, or yeah, do you have to I wave a checkbook? One of the imports actually was held up at docks for about six months, and I think uh, what actually got the the stamp on the export papers was that we actually purchased um, an office leather swivel chair for them right. and miraculously <laughs> the stamps were put on the papers and they they were you know they were on their way Happy, isn't we? um but uh, but now it's a little bit different in russia that you know in, in those days they looked upon it as scrap really but now probably we've got ebay to thanks for that you know <laughs> that they now see it as a value and of course, sort of by the time you take in any sort of import costs, it kind of ends up being a little bit unsustainable, really, to import anything these days. I think it was something like, um, I've forgotten the exact figure, but I think it was something like 18 aircraft wrecks that we imported. There were six P-63 King Cobras. There was a Mitchell 
a Kate, the B5N2 Kate, several Kai 43 Oscars, um, some Hurricanes, two A20 Bostons. And it did, you know, to be fair, it all arrived. Some of it suffered a little bit of damage in transit, but I mean, they're just, you know, it's very difficult to control that really because it's such a remote location. But uh, we did actually receive what we set out. I'm feeling you're, you're glad of. that you got them out when you did. Yes, absolutely, because I think it gives the museum a little bit of a unique point of interest, really, because people can come here and they can learn about other theatres of war, not just the Battle of Britain and not just D-Day and the Allied invasion, but also other theatres of war. And I think the mu- that sort of is what the museum's about, is about remembering things that might be forgotten. And what we plan to do in the future is to focus on the Burma campaign. All right. Um, oft forgotten well yeah and I think really what planted that seed in my mind was that um, some years ago I was at the War and Peace show down in Detlin of Paddock Wood Mm -hmm. and there was a a veteran that was being wheeled about by his son and he was holding a samurai sword and he was looking to sell this and I just asked him you know obviously I said you know what's that and he said well you know I'm I'm a veteran. I said, oh, where, where did you serve? And he said, in Burma, I was part of the Forgotten Army. And for him to see himself like that, that kind of, I just thought how sad that was, really. Yeah, yeah. That, you know, and I think people don't really know what went on out there. And I have to, I have to confess that I'm fairly limited in my knowledge on what went on out there. So I think that that's what museums should focus on is is not just the things that people already know about, but the things that are perhaps are already slipping into the back of people's minds, you know, and, and are at risk of being forgotten. My name is Len Wellington, and I've been a volunteer at Wings Museum for approximately 11 years now. That sounds like you're properly heavily involved. Yeah, well, I'm the longest-serving volunteer that we have at the moment, and I started with them when they were up at Red Hill. Uh, We were there for about two years or so, and then uh, we took a year to move the whole museum down to our position now here at Balcombe. Now, I've seen inside the building, and I've seen how many things and bits there are. That sounds like quite a big job. Yes, but... Not everything you see in there at the moment was there at the move, of course. Some of it's been added since that time. It's it's Uh, grown in the time you've been here? It's grown quite a lot, yeah. We're to the point where we're now running out of space to put things, as you've probably seen. And there is still more to come, of course, so hence the the need for extra space if we could find it. And I've noticed around there are signs saying, you know, do you have things to donate to the museum, to, to show in the museum. Mm-hmm. Do, do a lot of visitors come with stories and uh, artefacts from their family histories? A fair few, yeah. I mean, we're not inundated with them every week. <laughs> but, uh, no, we get, some, we get quite a lot of stuff that's brought in. Um, usually it's granddad's stuff that's been found when he's passed away. They found something in either in the loft or in a suitcase somewhere. They don't want to chuck it away but they don't actually want to keep it themselves. Do they always know what it is? Not always, no. And sometimes I don't either. (laughs) (laughs) Or quite often I don't, in all honesty. But, yeah, a lot of it's quite interesting stuff. Um, A lot of it's clearly things like uh, parts of uniforms, say, and medals or things like that. And they're usually not 
the really rare metals because they are the ones that people tend to hang on to. But we do get some interesting things. We uh, Sometimes you get people walk in and they'll have a, a dagger or something like that, <laughs> you know, or maybe a bayonet. And yeah. you're like, oh, that's interesting. Different. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's the hope that they're not robbing you at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, you get a fair, fair amount of stuff brought in. Um, a lot of books, of course, as well. We get a lot of donations of, of that type, things that people have now read and have, don't want any more in collection. Quite often, it's the the story is I've got thousands of these now at home, and the wife doesn't want me to I've keep been, any I've more. I've been told to get rid of them. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, exactly that. So, yeah. so you get a lot of those sort of things as well. So, how how did you become involved? What why do you spend your spare time here? Right. Well, I've been a sort of an aviation nut for since I was about twelve or thirteen when I first flew in an aircraft in uh, a Dakota, strangely enough, mm. uh, of what was then Jersey Airlines, <laughs> uh, with my parents from Bournemouth, which at the time was known as Hearn, of course. Mm-hmm. And ever since that time, I've been sort of mad about aircraft, basically. Um, and I looked up on the, the uh, wonderful web for aviation volunteers, and this is one of the places that came up. You know, I haven't gone up to Red Hill to talk to Daniel and, and Brian, I decided I would, uh, you know, give them a bit of my time. So what was it about this particular collection that, that appealed, do you think? The, the thing that really grabbed me, I think, uh, was that we actually at that time had a, a whole aircraft that I could work on, uh, on which I was told, um, but they didn't at the time, uh, the engines ran and it was taxable. That was probably my first major job was working on that, although I've done several others, of course, including a lot of work on the A26. That was the the job that it was when it first came here was sort of given to me and said, look, here you are, I'll clean this up, sort of get get rid of all the corrosion. And I said, well, there won't be anything left. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's now been worked on for about seven years. I haven't really worked on it now for probably two years. But the guys are doing a super job now. And it's, it's more the finishing side of it now, uh, which is not me. Uh, I do. I, I do. Yeah. The, they tidy it up, clean it up, get rid of the rough bits, and then pass it on to somebody else. Is mostly what I do with that type of project. I quite enjoy as well because I get a lot of the other type of exhibits that we've got to look after. So the the uniforms and medals and logbooks and all these sort of things in in their cabinets. I usually get the jobs of general upkeep of, of the cabinets and what's in them or putting in a special ultraviolet reducing film so that the things don't fade and, and deteriorate. But also quite often we have to clean the uniforms and this sort of thing. We, we do get a little bit of a mould problem at times after the winter when it gets cold and damp. So, so those sort of things need cleaning. These jobs we're talking about, fixing aircraft, yep. sorting things out, maintaining artefacts, yep. was that things you did in your job, your occupation? Nothing like it. <laughs> Absolutely nothing like it. No, my job, I was an engineer with the old British gas, not the current one, for some 30-odd years. And so I was supervising, uh, looking after guys digging holes in roads. And so this is why when the guys here say they're going off to dig on, on a site, would I like to go along? I usually say no, because I've looked down enough holes over the years. <laughs> Thank you very much. And another one is not got a lot of fascination for me. have been there and for. done that. Yeah. And I've got a fascination for me, no. The other thing, which I haven't mentioned that I did when I first started with them, at that time, 
Daniel was very keen to get information about all of the squadrons that had served at Red Hill during the war. And to that end, I was going up to the National Archive at Kew and uh, copying the squadron records. Now, these are actually copies of the actual squadron record books that were kept during the war. And the plan was to try and get a copy of every one of the squadrons. That um, yeah. Yeah. There was a lot of it to do. The trouble with it was that when you searched for things up there, you found other things that were of interest and you spent and suddenly an hour had gone by and you'd actually got sidetracked doing the wrong thing. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'd done quite a lot of those. Lots of interesting stories, presumably. There were an awful lot of fairly short stories in, in, within there, of course. The usual thing was that you'd, you'd get something that, that described, say, they'd been on a rhubarb that day and Fred hadn't come back. You know, and but the next uh, entry would be the squadron leader, so and so, had turned up to judge the garden in the inter squadron <laughs> garden competition. And it's a, but you sort of, when you sort of think back about it, of course, it's probably the thing that kept them sane. The, these sort of things, the, the everyday, the everyday thing, yes, yeah. And on same on that same thing, there would be things about the squadron dance in there. And while we were at Red Hill, we had two old ladies come in and look round the museum. And on their way out, one of the ladies said to me, I used to come to the squadron dances here. <laughs> wow, yeah. <laughs> you know, so there was a real genuine connection back back to the place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you get some really interesting stories at times. You're saying visitors with stories there. I mean, you, you've been here when I visited previously, mm. greeting us as we walk through the door. I mean, there must be some fascinating stories and characters that come in to look at a museum like this? Many interesting people. Quite often there, um, we get a lot of ex-service people, of course. Yeah. Less and less wartime, although we do get a few of those still. We had the guy who uh, came in with his daughter and son-in-law, and he didn't say anything about it, but his daughter let us know that he'd been in the Merchant Navy during the, during the war mm. and had actually served on the Arctic convoys, well. which, you know, which... Uh, that was a job I certainly wouldn't have wanted to, no, to no. have done, thank you. And on a cold day like this, we appreciate what they got up to. <laughs> well, yeah, and they were even colder, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, we did have a guy who came in. Now, we have got a, a bowfighter cockpit. I think you've seen that probably in the, mm -hmm. in the museum there. That came over, was restored in Australia uh, by an organisation out there. And we had a guy come in one uh, morning, one Saturday morning, very early, and an uh, Australian guy. And he said he'd come to specially to see that oh, item because yeah. in Australia it, would, it had been restored in the place that was next to the museum where he volunteered in Australia. Right. And he hadn't seen it finished out there, so he'd come to see it here. <laughs> yeah. And he said, I've just flown in on the A380 this morning from yeah. Australia. Well, it turned out not only had he flown in on the A380, he was actually the captain of the <laughs> A380. <laughs> so, so properly he, keen. So he was properly keen, yes, yes. He was looking very tired, probably you know, after his, what, 16-hour flight or whatever <laughs> yeah, yeah. it was. Um, but, he, yes, yeah, so, so we get we get all sorts of people. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, the previous podcast, I spoke to some people at a windmill down near Brighton, and they were saying that they've got people following what they get up to Again, from Australia, oddly enough. Now, with, with the internet, people are able to look at what you've got here from an awful long way away without perhaps ever coming through the front door. 
Well, that is very true, of course. Um, uh, you know, most of the projects we got here, the, the information is updated. It doesn't show you the smaller things that go on, but of course the big things like the A26 and uh, now the P63 and, and the, the Merlin engine and things like that, they're the things that people aren't interested in. Running the Merlin, I mean, we were Running, here for that a couple yes, of weeks yeah, ago, yeah. Uh, and obviously that is quite an iconic thing, and I know Absolutely. that there were people who came a long way for that. Yeah, I, d I don't know who the furthest person that came from it, but um, there was certainly, it was one of the biggest crowds we've had this year. So you, you've been doing this for a long time, yeah. perhaps two or three times a week that you come? Yeah, well, during the summer it'll be twice. Wednesday's the work day, yep. and Saturday is usually the day I come and help man the museum uh, when we're open. Uh, I usually get the job of working the till. Because for some reason I, I can add <laughs> I can add up very well. <laughs> yeah. and, but during the winter, of course, uh, the museum isn't open because it's just not warm enough to be here. I mean, we certainly couldn't have visitors in. And Wednesdays is the only day I come up because that's our work day. That gets very cold in in January and the like. But uh, we we work our way through it. And lots of little jobs to keep you going through the winter. There's always a job. There's always a job, even if it's only something as simple as dusting something or you know uh, just polishing a bit of something somewhere in the in the museum there's always a job to do my name's andrew collins i'm a volunteer at the wings museum and what we're looking at at the moment is a canberra or should i say the front end of a canberra this was picked up by daniel hunt as his project it is basically belongs to him he bought it i think it was actually owned by the air cadets I've been working on it now for about two years, trying to get everything working again. A lot of parts were missing from it. The door catches down here were all seized. They're all spring-loaded, so that when you push them in, they and then take your key out, they right, retract. Yep. Yep. When you push the button, they shoot out. Lovely. And that wasn't like that No, they, they, originally. they just didn't work. They were seized solid, so I've had to dismantle them all. A lot of the, the screws in here are so tiny, none of them would come out, so I've had to spend hours drilling them out, manage to get all the screws out, and then recut the threads and redo it. Open her up. Cock it up. Put the thing in. <laughs> the mechanism, is. yep. That's it. And uh, up inside, if you, you put your nose in and smell, it smells like a new car. It's got its own, I don't know what it is. It is what aeroplanes smell like. Yeah, yeah. But, a uh, com combination of yeah. grease and uh, dirt and it, whatever else has been around. Inside, you've only got the pilot in the front here. The navigator and the bombardier would have been in the back. Yeah. And when they actually were doing a bombing run, he would, the bombardier would come up into the front here and he oh. would lay up in there. Crawl into a gap. The bomb site and everything Fire in the nose, yeah and he'd be in there. When we got it, a lot of the instruments were missing. We actually did have some of them. For some reason, the air cadets took them out to clean them, and uh, we don't know what they did with them. <laughs> so we've been gradually putting all of it back together again. We've got almost all the cockpit done. Up here is an explosive panel, which is above the navigator and the bombardier. That, all the screws were missing. It was actually siliconed on. So eventually, after a lot of prying, we got it off. I've had to 
retap all the screw holes, put all the screws back in to put it back. Just before we did that, we put the ejection seats back in. They're all fitted. Yeah. There's also another little panel down here, which somebody had kindly unlock it, pinched right. half of the hinge. <laughs> so what happened was we tried to buy a hinge for it. You wouldn't believe that piano hinge was gonna cost 80 pounds. <laughs> so, and, it, and is there anything special about it? Not really, no. <laughs> but as it turned out, what I did was I marked it all out on a piece of aluminium and I made a new piano hinge, half a one. Mm. Also, this panel was missing. There should have been another handle this side, but obviously we haven't got one, so I've had to improvise by putting little bits on here to stop, when you push the button, stop the handle flying out. <laughs> so that one's been done, and it all works properly because it's got three points to lock. All right, yeah, pro and then properly that, secure. That goes back in. Yep. There's also another one up there, which at the moment is shut. Oh, yes. You can see the spanner sticking out the top. Yep. That one was C-solid. We couldn't get it open. We managed to get a new lock from uh, Gatwick Aviation. <laughs> Apparently they got boxes full of them. <laughs> but unfortunately, it was the wrong way round. All right. Because there's a left and a right hand. Of course. That and one this would be always be the wrong one. Yeah, that one up there's a left hand, and what they gave us was a right hand. Yeah. So I had to remanufacture the inside of the lock to get it to open the opposite direction. Because what happened was when you pushed it up and you pulled the handle, it locked it. When you pushed the handle back, it unlocked it, right. which is wrong. So we've redone all of that. Also rebuilt this little air cooling scoop that underneath. Right, yeah. That was completely rotten. We've all remade all of that done a bit of a repaint on some of it i spent hours polishing this only to find out it's matte <laughs> I, I spent i'm not kidding i think that pays your research it's about four, four wednesdays on here polishing it with a big polishing machine and rubbing it all down only to find out it is actually matte but um the reason daniel bought this is that he's one of his uncles flew one of these sometime during the nuclear detonations that were oh, right, uh, he flew one of these and this is the reason he wanted one right. but uh, we still got ongoing work because part of the canopy up there you can see where it's odd color up there look oh, yes, it's, uh... that's where um, that panel was whoever put it on put it two screws over one side so yeah. the the second panel that should go on it wouldn't fit so we now got to redo all of that but once it's done it will more than likely go on display and then people can actually get in it and yeah. see what it was like as a squeeze. You can actually get four people in there. There's a little dicky seat drops down in the side so you can sit four people in it. You wouldn't necessarily want to be on I that one for any distance. To, no. <laughs> but looking up some of the details of the aircraft, the canopy up there, which is explosive, on s several occasions when someone had to eject out of this thing, the canopy wouldn't come off. Oops. Because it is pressurised... The engineers put so much sealant in there to try and stop it leaking yeah. that when they blew the bolts, it wouldn't come off. And there's records of where they actually were having to get up there and push it to try yeah. and get it to come off, which I think must have been quite frightening. Uh, if you feel the need to eject from an aircraft, yeah. I imagine that would be a no. pretty terrifying. Yes. I think it would be, yeah. yeah. I've flown in a few jet fighters and that was frightening enough. You feel like when they accelerate down the runway, you feel like your face is going to come off. 
it's quite frightening, but it is also really exhilarating. Yes, yes. But, um, yeah, so we've still got quite a bit of work to do this one before uh, eventually it will, when we can find a space to put it... Appear to the public. Appear to the public. Yeah. I've still got to get up and polish the canopy because uh, that's starting to go a bit white. But um, it's really been a labour of love, this one, because there was so much wrong with it. But uh, I've now moved on. Somebody else is doing the actual canopy bits up there now. I've moved on to a Jet Provost, yeah. which we're going to put into the museum for kids to get in and out of. So we're trying to make it kiddie safe at the moment. So uh, that's the next project I'm working on. So I mean, these are actually sort of relatively modern aircraft in, in my head I would yeah, say yeah they are yeah. I mean but this is presumably just as, as time goes on we're mo- moving it, it, on with the times yeah I mean, it, it's, it's all historical aviation yeah. and that's what yeah. the museum is I mean the museum is basically it is World War 2 but obviously if people give us things it's like the, the Jet Provost I think we got that for peanuts because basically the, the bloke who was wanted to restore it chopped it up to get it in his garage (laughs) and he's chopped chopped the front off and he's chopped the back off so basically all we've got is we've got the cockpit and working on it I don't know how the engineers that were originally working on it did anything because nothing is designed to come apart it's taken me I think three Wednesdays to get one bearing block off of the cockpit and I've still got to work out how to try to put it back on again (laughs) I mean, are, are parts easily available for these things? No, no. So one, one of the biggest jobs that I mean, I've, I've seen going on, you can, you can hear in the background, a lot of banging, a lot of work yeah, going on. Yeah. But it's, a lot of it's reconstructing bits that have we're, come we're, off we're old. Make, make do and mend, as we put it. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, one of the lads at the moment is working on a hurricane seat. The museum bought one in good faith, thinking it was genuine. When we got it, Basically, I think it was made by a five-year-old. Nice. And fortunately, it did have some original parts on it, which we can use. Mm. But we've got a, an absolutely brilliant fabricator, Ron, and he's actually building a seat from scratch. Wow. Yeah. So I'm sort of helping him now and again with that. He's helping me with my project on the Jet Provis. He's just welded up some screws for me. What's happened is we've got some specialist screws in the cockpit that we can't get. Because I've drilled them out, I've only got the head left. So he's welded a new screw shaft on the back of the head so that I can use the head again. And here comes Ron now. He's working on the the cowling on that uh, canopy at the moment. I think he's going to get back up there and start drilling. And this is where the... uh the tall ladder comes out yeah. and uh, climb up there. it's not something you see every day but of course none of this is open to the public this, this, this is w- one of the things that yeah. I think is quite important to realise about I mean, w- when you visit the museum you see lots of stuff <laughs> all the stories, all the bits on the public display but there's so much going on behind the scenes it, yeah. occasionally we've had um, parties in that have booked to come in when we're shut and if there's a few of us around, we will take them into the workshop so they can see some of the projects that are going on. But obviously, we can't let everyone in because health and safety... Yes, not, not a suitable um, environment no, for many. No, <laughs> because it isn't. We have to try and make sure the public are safe. It is nice, though, to take them through sometimes to show them what you've been doing. Yeah. 
gives you a bit of pride when you show them, you know, what you've been doing and they think, you know, you're doing a great job, which all these lads are. I mean, they give up their time to come here. Some of them, like me, I come, it takes me about 40 minutes to get here. Some of them come further than that. I think one of the lads is uh, coming from somewhere just outside London, comes down. But uh, we all get on, we all have a good time, we all have a good laugh, and uh, we get the work done. And presumably, if there's people listening who have skills that uh, you might find useful, you'd really like to hear from them. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, and Always also, welcome. Also, if anybody's got any memorabilia, bits of aeroplane, instruments, anything like that, they uh, wish to part with, and uh, they'd like them to go on display in the museum, we're always welcome. And uh, anyone that's got any skills that we can use, again, they'll be welcome. Although uh, it means that we're going to have to get a bigger crew room. <laughs> if they're one we've got at the moment, it's too small. A nice problem to have. Mm -hmm. Definitely. My name's Barry Bloomfield, and I came here nine years ago now, and I had the task of cleaning a couple of radios to start off with. And that's all that was in the museum at the time. Since then, we've had probably up to 20 donated, all Second World War radios, and we took it upon ourselves to get them working so that people can come and see how they used to work. There are lots and lots of different boxes of different shapes and forms, different knobs on the side, dials, all sorts. We have here mainly, well, all Second World War radios that have been found in lofts and various places. We also have a civilian radio that was... Uh, donated that was the only one allowed to be manufactured for civilians in the war. Uh, that one works. We've got um, the famous 1154-55, which is used in the Lancaster bombers. We have the receiver working on that. It's not just one little neat box that no. came out of uh, a Lancaster. It's, it's lots of little neat boxes. It's two neat boxes, but you've also got a lot of ancillaries. The whole thing, which bear in mind it's just an HF set, it it probably weighs about 120 kilos when you add in all the uh, ancillaries because it had two big power packs with it as well. So the bombers were taking off carrying 120 kilos of radios, which is the same thing nowadays, looking at the amateur set over there, would weigh about three kilos. But it, it was good in its day and it did its job. So uh, that's one of the sets. The other sets we've got, we've got a couple of sets that were used by the uh, voluntary interceptors. These were people that were recruited by MI5 and MI6 at the beginning of the war for listening and all the information they received, mainly listening to um, broadcasts from the ABWA, the German Secret Service, etc., uh, all in code, Enigma and various other codes. And that information was given to Bletchley Park indirectly and helped to contribute towards the breaking of the codes. Uh, one of the sets, in fact, the AR-88 at the bottom there, was used in the film, the Alan Turing film, The um, Imitation Game. It was lent to the film company by its previous owner, and he gave it to us after that. A mouse had been living in that one, so that took a while to get going. And, and getting things going is one of the things that uh, you do enjoy doing, don't you? Uh... <laughs> Well, it's a, we're both amateur radio I, people. I'm hearing yeah. giggling in the background. <laughs> we, uh, we do our best to get them going. Um, I wouldn't say we're 100% experts, but we do get them going so that people can see them going and they're safe. And uh, it does keep us warm in the winter because they're all valve sets. So we started off in a little hut over the way there, which could get about three people in. And then this one, the uh, museum decided to uh, 
make a bigger display of it because we had so much stuff. And uh, Bernie and I put this up together, what, six, seven years ago now? And, um, and it's certainly nice and cosy on a day like this. It's well insulated for that reason. <laughs> <laughs> Whilst you may freeze in the museum in this particular place, you, you'll be relatively warm. Other than, other than that, we've got uh, a 19 set that was used in uh, tanks and the Western Desert, and the Russians had a lot of those as well. We've got that one working, and uh, there are various other air traffic sets and PCR sets and things, and a couple of portable ones, and one set that was used by the um, various people, but including the um, Met Office at Dunstable. Uh, we have a picture here of several ladies working on these sets. Met flights would fly out over the Atlantic and the... Uh, and the North Sea getting all the information and signalling back to these uh, ladies at Dunstable. And from that, they made the uh, Met charts, which helped for the D-Day 6th of June, if nothing else. So all of these fairly large boxes, I mean, I, I, we're talking, what, 18 inches by, what, a foot high? By, by <laughs> Perhaps another 18 inches deep, most of them? Oh, yes, and uh, they're heavy. Um, the AR-88 weighs up to 40 kilos. Um, so you wouldn't run out of the door with one. And this PCR up here, which is what it's uh, about nine inches by, 18 inches by a foot, that's fairly heavy, and that was uh, described in some manuals as a portable radio set. <laughs> um, they were held in naffies for the troops to listen to the um, the BBC and things like that. Um, we have a couple of other smaller sets here. We have uh, a little B2, which was the receiver part of a, a suitcase radio. Ah. Uh, promised ourselves we'd make the transmitter and put it together one day, but at the moment we've got too much on. Yes, and the, the label next to it mentions the special operations executive. That's that, right. Uh, I mean, this was the, the French resistance and all this kind of uh, getting information in and out of yeah, the people occupied places. The people that were dropped into France uh, may have had one of these in the suitcase. And, and it's certainly not small and easily hideable. I wouldn't have thought. When you got in a suitcase with a transmitter, it wasn't. It was uh, in a suitcase, so it was uh, portable as such. But they must have been quite heavy. The other thing we have is we have a an old crystal set and various things, so that when the um, children come in, they can see what a crystal set is, because mm -hmm. they've half of them have well more than half have never even heard of a crystal set. I think very few. <laughs> and uh, we have Morse keys. We've got uh, bug keys from the Americans. We've got uh, what they call a bathtub key, which is well known in the. Uh, RAF and most of their aircraft and we do use them occasionally and when the children come in they can uh, they can have a go and setting their names on the Morse keys in which case they get a certificate I'm Bernie my role is to assist Barry <laughs> <laughs> he's got more knowledge on the valves than I have but between us uh, we work the circuitry out and uh, do our best to get the radios up and running. But I tend to run the amateur side. The station here has a club call sign and we use that to contact people around the world and promote the museum while we're doing it. And it's also when visitors come in, they, uh, they get quite interested when they hear foreign voices coming through the radio. Usual question is, how far do you get? So to answer that, about 18 months ago, we put a world map up onto the wall and started putting little stickers on it to show where we've contacted. The farthest north at the moment was an ice flow in the Arctic. 
<laughs> a scientific expedition. And the farthest south is the Falkland Islands. And looking at that map, I see dots pretty much everywhere in between as well. <laughs> yes, um, a couple of weeks ago I managed to get a J Japanese station. Um, there's nothing on Australia at the moment, partly because of the time factor. The best contacts for there are early morning or very late at night. And we're That's not, not here when then. the museum's open. No. But uh, we have we have had some contacts. If we went, we have to keep a logbook of every contact we made. And if we go back through the logbook, if I went right back to the start, there are a couple of Australians mm. on good days before the dots came out. Before the dots came out, <laughs> we've got a VHF set, a UHF set, a four meter set, and an HF set. We've also got the capability of using the computer. It's what you would call an extension of packet radio. And if you know your history on amateur radio, it was amateur radio that actually brought about texting, faxing by radio. And first people to do it were amateurs. It's a cheating way of doing Morse code. <laughs> <laughs> Which, yeah, for those of us who've never been able to learn Morse, uh, do appreciate. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's very interesting, Morse code. Um, to get my full licence, I had to do 12 words a minute and take an exam. It was done at the GPO station on the Isle of Wight. It was where I did my one. But, Has um, it been a while? <laughs> um, yes, you could say that. Um, and I'll be perfectly honest, I haven't, I haven't actually used my Morse code on air. I can still send, but on the receive side... Because I haven't used it for so much, I stop and think, and by then you've missed half the message. <laughs> but my colleague Barry... <laughs> um, he, he's puts, fluent. He puts us to shame. Uh, <laughs> and he does keep on at me to uh, get my speed back up, but uh, we will one of these days. So, I mean, with the connection with the computer and the internet and uh, various other bits, you know, video calls and Skype and things these days, when people come in here, are they... Still, do they still think that it's, it's magic that you can sit here and talk to people on the other side of the world? The the problem you've got today with a um, mobile phone, you can talk to the world. Yeah, we can do it on the radio. Once we've bought the equipment, it is now license free or a free license. Um, you still have to pass your exam and just re-register every five years to prove you're alive, but you don't have to pay for your license. So apart from a bit of electricity to run it, it doesn't cost us anything to talk to the world. And as for computerising, the latest developments in amateur radio, they actually link through the internet. One of our sets that we've actually got on at the moment is listening to a repeater station on the Isle of Wight. And that has also got a link into the, the internet. And quite often you hear American, Australian, particularly there's a guy up in Scotland... <laughs> uses the internet to access the repeater. Right. And it's got to the stage now with the correct app on your phone and you have to be licensed. I could actually use my mobile smartphone and talk to the world through amateur radio. So th this is how the technology really has yep. moved on. I mean, in my head, I've still got a picture of Tony Hancock sitting at his... Uh, <laughs> great big bank of <laughs> boxes knowing whether it's raining or not in hong kong or wherever it was but what what do you talk to these people about are there any particular subjects not really um you just do you know if it's raining in hong kong <laughs> <laughs> you do get weather reports um 
very often they exchange what equipment they're using. And once you tell them where you're transmitting from, the museum, they want a bit of knowledge about the museum. So you have a chat about the museum. There are occasions that um, you might talk to somebody you've spoken to before. So it goes into a bit of detail. But... Um, yeah, do, do, do you speak to a lot of people more than once, or is it does it tend to be a one-off? From here, a lot of it is one-off, because generally if you hear them on the radio and you've spoken to them, we tend to look for another contact. <laughs> you um, want another dot on your map, that's the trouble. <laughs> yeah, well, when you've got five radios on the yeah, go, yeah. you're listening whatever comes up on it, and if it's somebody, it could be a special event station, then we will try and work it, even if we've worked them before. The old Chalk Pits Museum, the Amberley Museum, they have a radio station down there with a unique call sign, and we know the chaps down there, so whenever they're on, if they don't get on, somebody answer them, we'll have a chat to them. HMS Belfast, anchored up in the Thames, that's got an amateur radio station, uh, GB2RN. We often hear them on two metres, and we'll go back and have a quick chat. The other thing you've got is a, a lot of the amateur satellites, particularly over at Guildford, vast majority of the people that work on those are radio amateurs. And a lot of development work has been done through the amateur radio. Which presumably d- dates back to hearing Sputnik and things going across in the 50s. Yes. And of course, what, what made a big difference was uh, Tim Peake. All right, and the, the International Space Station. Yeah. Um, he was in a radio ham. And he did make a lot of contacts with schools and that, um, which publicised the amateur radio quite considerably, created a lot of interest and has brought quite a few youngsters into the uh, amateur world. Can you understand all that? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> quite keen for people to donate personal items that also tell a story. Why is that so important, do you think? I think it's important because, you know, unfortunately in this day and age where um, you've got eBay, you've got people that are in this that are looking to to sell things to make money, we always have to question the provenance because we're representing the memories of these servicemen and these conflicts. We have to ensure that, that it's correct so really, when something comes into the museum that is from somebody's granddad or their father or something like that, it's, it's a question we don't have to ask. We know it's right. Yeah, we yeah, know it's real. The person has walked in with the item yeah. and, yes. I mean, I've come across it before. that I did actually buy a group um, to a Dakota pilot who served on D-Day. These items, a lot of them were named. A lot of them were, you know, you, you knew they were correct, but the group had been added to by the dealer so when I started to research it there are actually medals that are included in the group that he was never awarded right yes (laughs) as I do with these things if I feel that I can research it further and I can clarify that it's correct then I often take a bit of a punt a bit of a gamble doesn't always pay off but on this occasion I actually traced the family so they were actually able to recognize things from when you know obviously they had the clearance 
occurred mm. and they could say that's right that was never there that's nothing to do with it and then the thing that shocked me was that the photograph that said Lieutenant Clary on the back, he, they said, that's not our father. <laughs> right. So <laughs> I even had to disregard the photo, but yeah. they were able to correct it, correct history, if you like. So basically the other bits and bobs, they, they weren't really of interest to us. So they were just sold on to recover some of the costs and they were sold on as they are, you know, just blank medals with, mm. with, no, with no history or no names associated to them. But the items that we confirmed are actually on display just in front of the jump door of the Dakota here. And that's quite satisfying when you can correct these things, but it, yeah. it does also make you question everything. And <laughs> that's why it's important mm. for donations direct from people because yeah. there isn't money involved. So therefore there's no reason to make up any stories, you know. And it's presumably just quite nice for the family to know that their family members being remembered absolutely yeah i mean they often come back and they're quite proud i think that they know that um they're being remembered especially if uh you know there's a lot of uh, items in here that are associated to uh casualties their kind of display with their medals or or whatever it might be is a kind of memorial to them you know and we have the public passing through and every time that story is read and that person's name is read and often their age it's appreciated they're being remembered that is what i think makes the museum what we hear a lot from the public is it's the the personal stories it's not just a collection of metal and tools it all has a story to tell 